Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Alcohol and other drug use are the leading cause for disability in young people. Comorbidity between alcohol and drug use and mental health problems is common and can quickly and easily have grave outcomes. Very few young people with substance abuse problems seek help, with a staggering average of 18 years between identifying they have a problem and receiving treatment. While evidence-based treatments for youth substance abuse exist, it can take up to 25 years for this evidence to be implemented in clinical practice. In this week's show, we welcome Professor Leanne Hydes, a clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience in the development and testing of treatments for primary substance use and comorbid mental disorders in young people. Leanne Hydes holds a National Health and Medical Research Council Senior Research Fellowship and also is with the industry-supported Lives Live Well Chair in Alcohol, Drugs and Mental Health at the University of Queensland, Australia. She co-leads the federal government-funded grant for the Centre for Youth Substance Abuse Research, the only youth-focused substance use research in Australia. Throughout our discussion, Leanne delves into evidence-based approaches for the prevention and early intervention of youth alcohol and substance use and recent research being undertaken trying to bridge the gap between this evidence and what gets used in clinical practice. Professor Leanne Hydes, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to meet you. So for those of you, for those people listening who don't know your background, can you give us a little bit of um, insight into your career to date and how you've kind of arrived at this point? The short or the long version? Long version, please. (laughs) Okay. So um, I studied psychology at Griffith University and then I went into the Masters in Clinical Psychology program there. Um, I was always interested in addiction and um, drug and alcohol research in general Um, and my honours thesis was on ADHD and drug use and then my master's thesis was on um, screening for cannabis use problems in people with psychosis and during my master's I got talked into writing a Australian Research Council grant and then we got that so that was my PhD which looked at the relationship between cannabis and psychotic relapse in people in the early stages of psychosis. What makes you passionate about, like it's such a sort of intricate, complicated area, what makes you passionate about it? I guess I've just always been really curious about how drugs affect people Mm. and how it affects some people differently to others and that some people can take drugs and 
in a kind of experimental, almost fun way and, and not develop problematic use, whereas there's a subgroup of people who do develop problematic use. So I guess I saw a lot of that growing up mm. in my teenage years and early adulthood with some of my friends mm. and that sparked a curiosity that was already there. Yeah, because I know um, from my experience I have uh, my brother as has a, is an alcoholic, well, would be considered an al- alcoholic and uh, has used drugs in his time as well and it's such a, a difficult thing because like you said there's some people who could use it recreationally and not develop an issue what is it about people in that subgroup that seem to head down that path and are unable to sort of use it recreationally well I guess there's sort of always some sort of vulnerability there's always some kind of predisposing factor that that made them vulnerable to develop that problematic use so go from that kind of starting to use, getting into more frequent use, into problematic use and, and then eventually into dependence. Um, it's not, a, not, necessarily, not necessarily a fast process, but um, there's some people that just seem to kind of have that vulnerability and it could be an underlying history of trauma, um, family history of alcohol and drug problems, um, the environment is very important growing up, um, you know, lack of supervision, um, you know, just... Um, growing up in a low socioeconomic area where there's a lot more drugs available. There's all sorts of risk factors. I mean, we've been looking, if you look at some of the large longitudinal studies that have been done in the United States, looking at development of substance use from childhood all the way to adulthood, there's just these key factors that keep coming up. Mm. So there's some really key factors that increase that vulnerability. So your focus is um, a a lot to do with youth, youth um, alcohol and other drug use abuse and things like that. Yep. What's the difference between a youth using yep. and an adult? Is there, is there much of a difference or is it just simply uh, a youth grows into becoming an adult? Um, I guess, that, you know, I mean, people tend to start using certain drugs and move into others later. Mm. So it used to be tobacco, um, but now not many young people smoke at all. So alcohol might be the first thing that they might try. Um, and then, you know, it's, I guess it's a lot about what effect it has on them. Um, if it's just a bit of fun, great. But for some people, um, particularly those with that kind of vulnerability, they might find that um, it makes them feel better. Mm. So a lot of people will sort of start using more frequently to manage negative feelings like depression or anxiety. So if they get anxious at a party, they might find if they have a few drinks, they might feel more comfortable and they might have a good time. So then you've kind of got a a positive reinforcement process where you're having a good time and a negative reinforcement process where you're taking away those negative feelings. Mm. It's like, wow, that was really fun. Mm. And then there's people who are just more depression-prone who will just, you know, are more likely just to to, to drink or use drugs alone um, and then they just feel better, Mm. you know. And some of the research I've done in psychosis, they talked about very explicitly about how smoking cannabis in particular would bring up some of their positive psychotic symptoms like hallucinations and and delusional thoughts that were often quite distressing. But that trade-off between a little bit of that and actually just feeling better Mm. made it worthwhile. Mm. So it's a a bit of a balance between the positive and the negative for a lot of people. Well, speaking about cannabis use because it's so often kind of bandied around as a gateway drug and but there's you know that conversation that's happening now between legalizing it um and whether or not to do that um is would cannabis 
Would you consider cannabis a, a gateway drug or is something like alcohol more of a gateway drug and sort of makes people more susceptible to doing harder drugs down, down the track? Oh, look, you know, it's hard to know what gateway drug might be one person's compared yes. to another's, yeah, really. True. Yeah. Um, um, the evidence for gateway isn't that strong, mm. but, you know, obviously if you're going to use one drug, you're more likely to use another. Mm. So I, I do think that it's not specific to a certain drug. Okay. It's probably more um, that willingness to try things. Mm. And if you try things and you enjoy them, you're more likely to do it. And then... And it's also, you know, with young people in particular, it's really the peer group that's around them that has a massive impact. So if your peers are using drugs and drinking alcohol, you're much more likely to do it, mainly because it's available, but mm. also because it's sort of socially reinforced as well. Kind of peer pressure. Oh, young people will never admit to peer pressure. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that never they affects us. They would never say, <laughs> you ask them that, they're nah, 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 and... But, you know, you've got to be a little bit, you know, you've got to ask about it in a bit of a different way. But, mm. yeah, definitely. I think it's more about availability and, and social learning. Yeah, and yeah. kind of being normal. Yeah, yeah, it's seen very, as very normative. Um, I mean, um, on the good side, young people are starting to start using alcohol and other drugs later. Oh, okay. So if we look at the national data, um, we see that the age of onset is getting a little bit older. So yep. there is a bit of a change happening in that normative um, profile of when young people start to drink or use drugs. But do, do you know why that is or oh, that hasn't um, come out yet? We, we're not really sure. Um, I think that the messaging around alcohol and drugs has changed a lot from a public health perspective, mm. particularly alcohol. Um, you know, there's been a lot of campaigns around, you know, parents not drinking in front of their kids, the messaging that, that parents are giving their kids about drinking all the way through. Um we're also in a society that's much more focused on health and fitness than mm. perhaps our parents were, um, you know, and going out drinking all night and then getting up and doing a run the next morning or going mountain climbing isn't really Sounds <laughs> conducive. <awful. laughs> yeah, so I, I think there has been some changes in, in the, the public perception of how normative it is to go out every weekend night and get really drunk mm. you know and, and almost in some social circles of young people it's looked down upon mm. whereas once upon a time it was very much encouraged and those were the cool people yeah almost a rite of passage to be like yeah, yeah yeah and I remember giving lectures at university like 10 years ago and people talk about it being a rite of, pa pa rite of passage mm. so uh, and there's still there's still a group of you know young people who are still the biggest users of alcohol and other drugs mm. 18 to 25 year old um, age group but, yeah, they're definitely starting later, mm. which is a positive. Has it been impacted by COVID at all? Yeah, we've, we've done a little bit of work on that. We've, um, we've got an adolescent sample that we're following up um, and we had a group in year 12 this year compared to last year. And, and we found that, um, that and, and this is pretty much across the board regardless of who it is, that the, the alcohol use has kind of gone up a little bit, mm. um, cannabis as well. Party drugs have gone down a lot because there's no parties. Nobody's been going out. Um, and there was none available really. So, mm. um, yeah, I think it's um, – I think people have just, you know, I, I think there's been probably been less availability for young people um, in terms of just access to drugs mm. like party drugs but maybe more alcohol and cannabis around. Yeah. But, you know, overall there's, I think there's been a bit of a decline. How common is the prevalence between um, uh, the comorbidities of – alcohol and drug use and, you know, mental health 
problems and issues is that yeah. is that kind of go hand in hand all the time or is it yeah it's 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 quite very common for them to co-occur um you know comorbidity is is the rule not the exception so particularly among people who are seeking help mm. we find really high rates of um like so polydrug use between 40 and 80 percent wow and um and polydrug use just means using two or more drugs to mm. that point of dependence um so you think about people who come into treatment for cannabis they'll very likely use high levels of alcohol as well so yeah. um and comorbid mental health particularly the common mental health disorders like depression anxiety you know probably about 50 percent 50 to 70 percent would come in with a comorbid mental health problem if they're oh. seeking help for a, for a, an addiction mm. yeah is it, I kind of feel like it's almost the chicken or the egg. Like, do you, yeah. do you drink because you are depressed or, you know, are you depressed because you drink? Is it, do you find that a little bit or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at the developmental trajectory, um, the age of onset of depression and anxiety is usually about 14, 15. Wow. Um, so they do tend and they'll tend to have those symptoms of depression and anxiety a bit younger mm. uh, than that. Um, I'm talking about disorders at 14 or 15. And then, you know, alcohol and drug use used to sort of start around 15, 16. Um, so, you know, if, if you looked at, at the chicken or egg thing, you'd go, well, the mental health came first. Mm. But then when they've done studies where they've looked at controlling for mental health problems before the onset of substance use, um, they found that substance use is still predictive of worse outcomes at mm. age 21 in terms of mental health. So... Um, it's a really difficult question to answer. Mm. Um, I think it depends on the individual in a lot of ways, but yeah. the evidence is pretty all over the place. Like sometimes we'll find that that um, even if they've had um, co previous depression, anxiety problems, that if they've started using drugs at a certain age, they're more likely to have worse outcomes on both. Mm. And sometimes we found the other way around. Oh. So it's largely thought so of interesting. So so it's largely thought to be bidirectional. Okay. So they do they just mutually influence each other. I was reading about how difficult it can be to treat the youth um, for the alcohol and drug use, um, and it is usually a really long lead time between them kind of having the the symptoms and actually getting treated. Almost eighteen years. Is that yep. correct? Yep. Why is it so long? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I think, um, you know, young people will start using drugs. Um, they'll be using with their friends. Um, there'll be – and you probably remember this growing up mm. – there'll be someone in the group that always gets more trash than everyone else mm. and then people have to care for that person. So that's the kind of person that should probably think about getting help early because mm. obviously they're, they're using and it's having negative consequences. So mm. it's not all fun. It's – you know, there's some negative consequences there and then it's beginning to affect their social networks. And eventually over time, if their use gets worse and they have more negative consequences, they'll lose those peer networks. Mm. And then that's when the problematic stuff kicks in. But um, we really do need to try and get them into treatment a lot earlier. Um, so, and, and I think so there's that normative drug use, even if you are drinking and using more than your friends and having negative consequences, that's still normalised to a certain extent. Mm. And so then, you know... Oh, they're just the drunk one. They're yeah, the party yeah, animals. Yeah, well, there they go again. Yeah. You know, ha, ha, ha. Silly them. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so the challenge is trying to get those guys into treatment a bit earlier. Um, and that's where a lot of what the work we do. Mm. How do you recognise that? Is it, is, is it as simple as working with the peer groups that they're around and educating them about how to recognise 
those signs and symptoms or how do we get that early intervention? Well, what, and what, prevention, of yeah, course, what, ideally. Yeah, what we, what we try and do is just go to the environments where they interact. Mm. So, um, so some of the work, the prevention work I've been involved in, we've gone into schools and everyone gets the same intervention that targets drug, alcohol and mental health. Um, there's other ways to do it where you do a more targeted approach. So you might target the kids who uh, have started using you know, at 14 or below because that's an early onset use or those have got parents with an alcohol or drug problem. There's multiple ways to try and identify them. Um, so it's just about figuring out which one of those variables is when you're going to target and target those people within that. Is that hard though because um, you almost don't want to segregate those people as well because... Yeah, you've got to be very careful. Yeah, you don't want particularly to. Particularly in schools. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, if they're sort of become recognised as one of the people who might be susceptible, yeah. you don't want that to impact their relationships and their yeah. friendship groups. No, absolutely. You have to be very careful, which is why a lot of the schoolwork is universal. Mm. So everyone kind of gets the same thing. It's done in a class. Everyone's participating, mm. that kind of thing. And, you know, not only does it take quite a long time between, you know, the problem being identified and actually getting treatment for mm. that person, but the it seems like the, the kind of clinical studies... Um, and then implication, um, implementation of the new ways and evidence-based um, treatments can be really lo quite a long lead time as well. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the first problem is people don't seek help. So um, I think it's something like, you know, probably only a third of people with a, young people below 25 with substance dependence will actually seek help. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. It's normative to have to use drugs and stuff. It's also... There's a lot of stigma around mm. help seeking. Um, young people don't um, see themselves as having a drug problem, so why would they seek help? Mm. I don't think the public really understands uh, what drug treatment is. Mm. Um, I think they all think it's celebrity rehab. Yes, yeah, I, I assume <laughs> yeah. they just think it's going yeah. off to rehab yeah, for a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, so I think, you know, which is a pretty extreme mm. <laughs> form of treatment for a, you know, 18-year-old kid. Um, they don't need it. You yeah. know, there's there's lots of ways you can re you can engage them in treatment through brief interventions. A lot of the work we do is via the phone. Okay. So we'll recruit young people and just say, we want to have a chat to you about this. Um and then just engage them in a conversation about it and then talk to them about it and we found really good outcomes that way. So you really need that gentle, gentle approach. How do you navigate that though? Because I remember being 19 and feeling six foot tall and bulletproof and, you yeah. know, thinking that nothing's going to affect me and, yep. um, you know, obviously that's not reality. How yep. do you break through that mindset to help um, people who might be having problems recognise that and yep. then sort of engage them? Well, the, the work we've done um, with um, rest and recovery, rest and, sorry, support and recovery services in um, safe night precincts like Chaplain Watt and Chill Out Zone. So we've worked alongside them um, because people who experience alcohol or drug related problems um, tend to seek out those services in those nighttime economies. Right. So um, they'll go in there with, you know, either um, an alcohol or drug related. Um, illness, which is basically if, if you're drinking, vomiting a lot, mm. um, or they're injured. Um, so it's about talking to them when we strike while the iron is hot kind of thing. So mm. you're talking to them when um, they've had a negative consequence. Mm. Um, you can't do much with them at that point because they're intoxicated. Of course. But what we do is we kind of recruit them then and say, hey, would you be willing to have a chat to someone about you know, your alcohol or drug use? 
Um, and most of them say yes, and then we'll contact them a couple of days later and just have a chat with them and do a brief intervention with them. We've had really good results from that. Because I remember um, going to schoolies uh, at 17 and drinking until blacking out for two nights in a row. Yeah. And then it was like I hit a, a fork in the road where I could see the path that I was heading down, um, sort of following my brother's experiences and um, going down that path of partying too hard and not really, uh, not achieving anything, but just, you know, being incredibly detrimental to my mental health, my physical health. Are there, you know, because obviously what you're doing is quite formal in terms of um, engaging with people. Is there something that parents or loved ones or friends can do to help um, in terms of just those little sort of dropping in ideas and, and knowledge and information to people who might be struggling? Well, it's just about having a conversation and having, starting that conversation um, and, and doing it in a very friendly um, non-confronting, non-judgmental way, you know, just saying, hey, you know, you've been trashed two nights in a row, maybe we should have a break tonight, mm. you know, and, and try and engage. Sometimes we've used peers to try and engage young people around um, those sorts of issues. So trying to get your peers to sort of say to them, hey, you know, how about we have a night off drinking tonight and let's go and do play, something else, do something else mm. you know. So I think trying to en encourage them to do activities that, people can't drink we drink at mm. for example or use drugs at um engaging them in other activities but really it's just about having an open and honest conversation with someone and just mm. saying hey look I'm a bit worried about your drinking mm. you know I've noticed that you're not you know you're coming home you're sleeping all day you're out all night you're not doing your homework you're not doing your uni work mm. you missed work you know what's going on yeah yeah because I find that fascinating kind of in today's society that still there's a stigma about reaching for help or asking for help. Yeah. What, what is that barrier? Do you understand why, you know, youth are, are sort of still quite hesitant, even though we're talking about it so much more? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I think talking about it more is really going to help with that. Mm. You know, normalising help seeking, you mm. know, is really important. Um I think the messaging around, you know, the prevalence of mental health problems and drug and alcohol problems needs to get out there. So people go, oh, it's actually really common. Yeah, you know, I'm not alone. Yeah, I'm not alone. And also just helping them understand that you don't need to go to rehab for nine months. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Seek help. That's not the... Yeah, that's yeah. That's the very other end of the yeah. spectrum. <laughs> so a lot of services are doing some great work in schools, for instance, mm. where kids can just drop in or you know day programs where people can just drop in and, and have a chat but mm. even getting them there can be problematic so mm. I think starting in schools is great yeah um but yeah I think it's just that sort of educating people that um seeking help doesn't mean you're gonna um end up in a rehab for nine months you might just have a chat to someone and that might really help yeah you know even just filling out a screening measure can actually reduce your substance use so even a really light touch can be really helpful. Yeah, it's just creating that awareness almost of, yeah. of where they're at. Yeah, yeah, it's just a check-in. So when we do lectures with university students, we'll get them to do the alcohol use drug disorders identification test or the audit and give them feedback on that. And they'll be surprised. Like, so about 40% of um, university students will screen positive for problematic alcohol use on that. Wow. And they're all quite shocked. Because mm. um, it's so normalised. <laughs> well, yeah. On, um, yeah, and they're more shocked that it's problematic than anything. Yeah, that's but, true. <laughs> but, you know, but, 
Um, but that I think when they realise how many of their peers are also up there, mm. you know, it's that kind of, well, is it normative or is this a sign that, you know, maybe you are drinking a little bit too much, mm. you know, and it's causing you problems? Because it asks about a lot of the problems associated with drinking that they've experienced. So it's about having the opportunities where people can do that kind of really light touch intervention, mm. get some feedback, and that makes them start wondering, well, you know, maybe I am drinking a bit more than, than I should. Yeah. And I think a lot of people felt that way during COVID. Mm. <laughs> so people drinking more than they probably would have. Or yes. Sh- you know, um, so it's just a gentle approach in. And so you're also part of um, some uh, web and mobile-based programs. Yeah. How do people access that? Is that pretty easy for people to sort of get on, on board? Yeah, it depends on the program. Um, so quite a few of them are available through uh, online, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and some of the apps are available through the app stores. Um, apps are pretty hard to maintain. Yes. <laughs> so they tend to disappear yeah. because they stop working and we cannot fix them. Yep. Um, but there's definitely some web programs out there that, that people can access. What are you finding is the biggest challenge for you um, in the area that you're working in at this point? That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, COVID threw some <laughs> curveballs <laughs> curveballs at us, you know, trying to um, – I mean, we're running quite a few trials at the moment um, and, and COVID threw some curveballs at us, but we are getting started again, so that's fine. We're very lucky in Queensland. Mm. Um, the biggest challenge, I think, is translating – um, the evidence into practice mm. by far. So there's evidence out there saying that only 25% of people are delivering evidence-based practice within our alcohol and drug services. Right, okay. Um, which is a terrible figure. Yeah, it's not um, ideal. And so a lot of the work we do is translational and it's not easy. It's really hard to translate the evidence-based work into practice. There's numerous barriers mm. right down to funding models, for instance, Funding models about number of patients seen rather than the quality of treatment they receive mm. or the outcomes they achieve. So we're very much trying to make drug and alcohol services more outcome focused, not funding that way for sure because, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you never know what's going to work with someone, yep. but more about outcomes in terms of the client getting an outcome that they want mm. rather than just volume and numbers going through the door. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. seem like an ideal thing to be focusing on is just no. people through the door. Well, the problem is that no one's got time for treatment. Yeah. Yeah, the system got so many clients coming through um, because a lot of drug and alcohol services have an open door policy, meaning mm. they won't turn anyone away. Mm. But the problem with that means is that they're overrun. Yeah. Um, so then they don't have time to actually deliver treatment. So what will your focus be on for, for the next year, two years? Oh, we're doing a lot of work. We're trying to translate quite a few interventions, so a brief intervention through a new Live Well telehealth service um, for young people, so expanding on some of the work we've done in the, night, the, the um, safe night precincts, um, trying to expand recruitment to university colleges and, and festivals if mm. they ever start again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe even schoolies next year. Yeah. Um, so just trying to really expand that, that net to try and identify young people earlier mm. who might be having problems, just even small problems. You know, if a small problem is much easier to fix than a big problem. Absolutely. So if we get them early enough, we can hopefully avoid some of those really bad negative consequences that some people experience because of substance use just mm. on a night out you know the amount of 18 year olds we've recruited on their birthday mm. 
you know, they're not having the night they dreamt they'd have. No. You know? No. They've ended up in an emergency department or with a rest and recovery service being looked after. Mm. You know, it's we, we want we want to get the education out to young people about um, we're not trying to stop them from drinking or using drugs. We're just sort of trying to help them learn how to do it in a safer way. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's always something that I find quite interesting um, to think about because uh, because of my experience with um, my brother, I don't drink um, or very little, um, yeah. maybe once a year or twice a year maybe. Um, and I am interested in the impact that that will have on my children because they won't see me drinking regularly or responsibly really um, because I don't do it and I certainly don't do it in front of them but will they understand how to do that responsibly or will they get to their 18th birthday and just go all out and you know get very sick from that or is it a kind of a good way to sort of teach them about alcohol in not drinking it in front of them? I mean, I think it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, as long as you have a conversation with them about that, mm. just say, look, mum doesn't drink for these reasons. Yep. Um, if you choose to drink, um, this is this is this is what you should and shouldn't do. Mm. Yeah. So you've you've got to educate them on you know because they're going to come across it. Yes. And it's about just sort of saying, well, when you come across it, you have a choice. Mm. You don't just because everyone else is drinking doesn't mean you have to. Mm. And if you do have a drink, this is you know how it affects your body, and this is how much your body can take before mm. you get quite you know drunk and that means this Mm. you know and helping them know those signs that kind of thing so normalizing very uncomfortable awkward conversations (laughs) with our children yeah I think you just need to talk to them yeah (laughs) who knew communication yeah (laughs) remarkable it's helpful yeah that's awesome uh thank you so much Leanne that was such a wonderful conversation and so insightful thank you so much great talking to you thank you Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.